0: Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Thank you for being here on this Wednesday morning. This is Just Human, number 229. I am back. We have lots of stuff to cover. I'm going to try and rush through it. I uh, I was considering going with just like one document today, like reading one filing in one of the court cases we follow, but there's just so much going on right now that I want to, I kind of want to hit on a few different topics that are all good news. Like, I like, last week and this week have been absolutely fire. There's just been so much good stuff happening, and uh, yeah, I, I'm having so much fun following the news. After taking a long break and all of that, it is good to be back, and it is good to be loaded up with stuff that's just fun to cover. So. We're gonna hit it. We're gonna hit that stuff. Some Hunter Hunter Biden case, uh, Biden impeachment inquiry, Trump's cases. Got some swamp draining going on. I'm excited. So I wish I could go later today. I wish today is one of the days that I wish I could do more than a two hour show, Uh, but I'm not gonna have time for that. I will be on Devolution Power Hour tonight. Probably talk about some of the same stuff we talk about on the show this morning. That that there usually is some crossover. Uh, and then I think we have some devolution stuff to talk about as well. So before I get to any of that, ways to support the show. This is a user-supported show. You guys make it possible for me to not have a day job and instead make this my day job and to do this research and to make these this content. I really appreciate it. I love doing this. I feel privileged and I feel blessed to do this, and it is because of your support. So the best way to support the show is to hit the thumbs up or to share it, leave a comment, uh, you know, send it to a friend or a family member who you think might appreciate it. And on that note, I want to point out last week's defected, last Sunday's defected. I really like this comment that uh, the account American Wings over on True Social gave it. They said last night's defective was really good. How can I tell? Because throughout the episode, I got pissed, curious, enlightened, pissed, again, agreeing, and ended up looking at things differently, again. And I love that. I love that. They said this was a good episode full of uh, some signal amongst all the noise, and I really appreciate that because we we got a little contentious about some stuff. We argued very varying points of view, alternate points of view, opposing points of view. So, if you missed last week's Defected over on Badlands Media, I would highly encourage you to catch the replay of it. I think it's well worth your time. All right. To support this show, hit the thumbs up, share it, send it to a friend or family member. And if you want to do more than that, my support links are in the description and they are also on my link tree. You can go to kofi.com and buy me a cup of coffee. Leave me a nice message over there. I really appreciate the kind messages you leave. I also have and some affiliate links. And one of them, I need to make sure I say the coupon code right. Hold just a moment. So the first affiliate link, my longest running sponsor of the show, Benson Honey Farms. I have some Benson Honey right here with me. I love it. It's in my coffee every morning. Benson Honey Farms. Click that link. You make a purchase over here, you buy some candy or some honey or some soap or some barbecue sauce or whatever, they kick a few dollars my way. And Mo, who is in the chat, good morning Mo, she let me know that Honey 15 will get you 15% off this week only. So use my affiliate link and use use the discount code Honey15 and it'll give you 15% off this week. Christmas is coming up, Honey Raw honey, unfiltered, raw honey, unpasteurized, just delicious. Literally raw honey. It's so good for you, and it's so delicious. So get some. Next, bootleg products. Use my affiliate link. Get yourself some salsas, some sauces, some seasonings. I love their products. I find myself cooking with their products every week, uh, multiple times a week. And uh, yeah, I've loved everything I've had from there. It's delicious. Use my affiliate link. It'll, whatever you buy, it'll kick a few dollars my way. And right now they have um, a code bootleg. You put in bootleg as a coupon code. You get a free product with your order. And they also have free shipping on orders over $50. If there's someone in your life who loves to cook, this might be a really good place to shop for them. Manly cans is new to the show. They reached out to me and I like their products and I think they're a great fit for the show. And, uh, yeah, so I, I took them up. You use the affiliate link down in the description or on my link tree, buy some gifts for a, uh, a manly man in your life. And, uh, they'll kick a few dollars. My way goes towards supporting the show. They have some great cans over there. My favorite, as you might suspect, is the dapper man can and the bearded man can. And lastly, I do have my own merch over at Red White Bourbon 45. If you're interested, I have some hoodies, some shirts, some hats, and things like that with my logo on on it, which feels really vain to me. I have to admit, I am a bit uncomfortable about putting my logo all over stuff, but I do strongly endorse the coffee cup. It is a high-quality coffee cup. I like it very much. I particularly like the one... This one just has the logo on it, which is cool. That's cool. I have this... I have one that just the logo on it, but my favorite one is this one that says understanding is greater than reacting. And indeed, understanding is greater than reacting. And we are going to do some of that today. Or at least we're going to attempt to practice that today. Salt Muncher, thank you for chipping in a couple bucks. Bear BL, you are way too generous. Thank you for the early Christmas donation. I promise I will spend it on my kids. I'll definitely be spending it on my kids. Might just be spoiling them this Christmas. We'll see. We'll see. They've been uh the young one's been a little honry lately. He's a toddler and he has he has acted his age. Uh, my oldest kid, but it's okay. I still love him. He's also adorable. Um, he also called me out for using a bad word the other day and made me feel ashamed for like two days in a row. <laughs> my oldest kid is overwhelmed with uh testing right now. So I feel really bad for him because he's in that, he's in that week of school where, uh, every day you're just, he's just sitting in, he's just sitting in a room testing all day long and he hates it. So I feel bad for him. All right. I don't know where to start. Where am I going to start? Um, let's start with swamp draining news. Let's do that. As y'all can see, I'm making this up as we go. Uh, Swamp draining news. We have some really good swamp draining news. Some of it you may have missed unless you follow me online. You wouldn't have missed it then. So first, criminal charges have been filed against Swiss Privat Bank or Banca Pictet AC or SA or Banque Pictet or something like that. I don't know, but it's Swiss Privat Bank. And they have been indicted for conspiring with U.S. taxpayers and others to hide more than $5.6 billion in 1,637 secret bank accounts in Switzerland and elsewhere to conceal the income generated in those accounts from the IRS. As part of today's... Well, before I read that, now... A lot of people saw this and I saw a lot of blackpilling about it. But understanding is greater than reacting. And if you take the time to read the whole thing, you'll notice it's fire. My friend, Kim Sachs, over on True Social, she took time to read the whole article and was like, oh, this is good, good, good. And she is right. So we're going to read this whole press release because you're going to notice some things in it that are, that are really exciting. So the bank is entering a deferred prosecution agreement for criminal misconduct and agrees to pay more than $122.9 million. So a lot of people saw that figure and said, wait, they hid $5.6 billion and they only have to pay $122 million fine that seems to be out of balance. Well, let's see. Let's see. Damian Williams, the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, who I think is actually leaving that job. I think I think I saw a filing in another case where he a letter to a judge where he said he was leaving the US attorney's office soon. I think. The acting, okay, then there's Stuart Goldberg, acting Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Criminal Matters, Jim Lee, Chief of Internal Revenue Service, Criminal Investigations, announced today the filing of criminal charges against Swiss Bank, or Banque Pictet, or Banca Pictet, for conspiring with U.S. taxpayers and others to hide more than $5.6 billion in 1,637 secret bank accounts in Switzerland and elsewhere, and to conceal the income generated in those accounts from the IRS. As part of today's resolution, Banca Pictet or Pictet. I'm going to say, I'm going to guess it's Banca Pictet because the Swiss like, it's kind of a, it's a very French influenced language. I don't know. Privat Bank entered into a deferred prosecution agreement and agreed to pay approximately $122.9 million to the U.S. Treasury. Today's resolution is one of a series of cases brought by the Department of Justice in connection with its investigations that have been going on since 2008 into facilitation of offshore U.S. tax evasion by foreign banks. The case has been assigned to U.S. Judge Edgardo Ramos. Now, it's been going on since 2008 because, believe it or not, there are some people within the United States Department of Justice and some people within the IRS and some people within the Department of Treasury who actually do good investigative work and are actually trying to hold people accountable. And this is the fruit of their labor. U S attorney, Damien Williams said, quote, as it has admitted today, Bunker picked and knowingly conspired to conceal from the IRS, the income generated by the accounts, Thanks to hard work of career prosecutors in this office and our law enforcement partners, the bank has agreed to pay more than $129 million. Rooting out financial malfeasance remains a priority for this office, and we encourage companies and financial institutions to come to us to report wrongdoing before we come to you. Now, Stuart Goldberg, the Assistant Attorney General, or Deputy Assistant Attorney General, Said the bank admitted to actively helping U.S. Taxpayer, taxpayers use coded accounts, foreign trust and entities, nominee beneficiaries, and other deceits to conceal their income and assets abroad. For this criminal conduct, the bank will be paying nearly $122.9 million in restitution, disgorgement of fees, and a financial penalty. So the $122.9 million, if you read into the press release, isn't all they're going to have to pay. There's more. They're going to have to disgorge the fees they made on the transactions. And they're going to have to pay another financial penalty, which I don't believe has been announced yet, how much it is. And the bank is required to fully cooperate with investigations relating to these secret accounts.
1: So... The bank
0: has to cooperate with them potentially some there's there's 1600 over 1600 accounts so the bank is going to have to cooperate with close to 1600 investigations potentially it depends on how many of them have to have duplicate owners or beneficiaries right but the bank has to cooperate with investigations into those secret accounts which is the real good news here IRS chief says, quote, this case should provide a clear message to others who try to hide their assets and come offshore, blah, 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 blah. Okay. According to documents filed today in Manhattan federal court, the Pictet group was founded in 1805 and is a privately held Swiss financial institution headquartered in Geneva that has historically operated as a general partnership and since 2014 as a corporate partnership. A limited ma- number of managing partners, generally eight or fewer, collectively known as The Salon, own and manage the group. As of December thirty-first, 2014, the group had approximately 3,800 employees in various locations, primarily in Switzerland, but also in Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Singapore, and the Bahamas. The group operates two main business divisions, Institutional Asset Management and Private Banking for individuals. Now, folks, how many swamp creatures do you think have transferred funds or interacted with this bank to cause funds to be transferred in, in or out? And they did that transaction and it was rooted through an entity based in Switzerland or Luxembourg or Hong Kong or Singapore or the Bahamas or... Manhattan in the Southern District of New York. How many swamp creatures do you think have engaged in transactions or caused transactions to occur who are based in one of those places or that it went through one of those places? We're talking about a lot of swamp creatures. <laughs> a lot. From 2008 to 2014, the group's private banking division was operated by the group's following banking entities. So this doesn't just concern. This one bank, Bunka Pictet, or whatever. It's also Pictet and Chi, or C, uh, which is headquartered in Luxembourg. Another bank, Pictet and Chi, which is in Asia and Singapore. And the Bahamian bank, Pictet Tr- Bank and Trust, which is in Bahamas. The Pictet Group provided offshore corporation and trust information and administration services to certain U.S. taxpayers first through the Estate Planning and Trust Services Unit and later through a wholly owned subsidiary called Roan Trust and Fiduciary Services. As of December 31st, 2014, the group's private banking division managed to hold custody of approximately $165 billion in assets under management. That was in 2014. From 2008 to 2014, the group served approximately 3,736 private accounts that had U.S. taxpayers as beneficial owners, whose aggregate maximum assets under management, including declared assets, was approximately $20 billion. Though the group adopted early measures to confirm that U.S. clients complied with U.S. law from 2008 to 2014, the group assisted certain U.S. taxpayers with group accounts in evading... U.S. tax obligations, and otherwise hiding undeclared accounts from the IRS. In total, from 2008 to 2014, the group held 1,637 U.S. penalty accounts, which aggregate maximum of assets under management is approximately $5.6 billion. as of January 2008. And on behalf of U.S. taxpayers who collectively evaded approximately 50.6 million taxes. So that's not even an up-to-date number. Shelly of Texas, thank you very much. I missed being here. I might be heading to Texas soon. Hope Hopefully. Hopefully I'm going to go to Texas very soon. Okay, the group... Assisted U.S. taxpayer clients, wait, 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 they already read that, by opening and maintaining undeclared accounts for U.S. taxpayer clients at the group, either directly or through external asset managers. They also maintained accounts of certain U.S. taxpayer clients and employees. The group, employees of the group, certain of its employees, either knew or should have known that some of their U.S. taxpayer clients were evading taxes, so knowingly. In every instance, managing partners approved the opening of new private client relationships and were were informed of the closing of U.S. taxpayer client accounts, which included some undeclared accounts. As further detail below, the group used a variety of means to assist U.S. taxpayer clients in concealing their undeclared accounts by, one, forming or administering offshore accounts in whose name the PICTAC group opened and maintained the accounts, some of which were undeclared, Opening and maintaining undeclared accounts in the names of offshore entities. Opening and maintaining private placement life insurance policy accounts, also called insurance wrappers, held in the name of insurance companies but beneficially owned by U.S. taxpayers and improperly managed or funded through undeclared accounts. Transferring funds from undeclared U.S. taxpayer accounts to accounts nominally held by non-U.S. clients but still controlled by U.S. taxpayer clients via fictitious donations thus assisting U.S. taxpayers in continuing to maintain undeclared funds offshore. Providing a traditional Swiss banking product, such as hold mail account services, where account-related mail is held at the bank rather than sent to the client. And coded or numbered accounts. So, guys, they help them. It wasn't as like the client did all this secret stuff and the bank should have been aware that something funny was going over here. No, the bank assisted them in hiding these accounts. It was a feature. Accepting IRS forms w 8 ben or the group's substitute forms that the group knew or should have known falsely stated or implied under penalty of perjury that offshore entities beneficially owned the assets in undeclared accounts. Now, we're going to keep going. I haven't actually got to the best part yet, I don't believe. The one hundred twenty-two point nine billion or million Banque Pictet agreed to pay to the U.S. Treasury pursuant to the Deferred Prosecution Agreement consists of fifty-two thousand plus dollars to the United States, which represents gross fees, not profits, that the bank earned on its undeclared accounts between 08 and twenty fourteen. Thirty-one thousand plus in restitution to the IRS, which represents the unpaid taxes resulting from the bank's participation in conspiracy. And $38 million penalty. The penalty consists the nature, uh, considers the nature and seriousness of the group's conduct, the bank's extensive internal investigation, the bank's substantial provision of documents, ooh, ooh, the bank's substantial provision of documents to the Justice Department, and the bank's facilitation of witness interviews. Don't you know some swamp creatures read that part and pooped their pants? The bank further implemented remedial measures to protect against the use of its services for future tax evasion. In addition to the payment, the bank also agrees under the DPA to accept responsibility for its conduct by stipulating to the accuracy of an extensive statement of facts. The bank further agreed to refrain from all future criminal conduct, we'll see how that works out for them, and implemented remedial measures and cooperate fully with further investigations into hidden bank accounts. Specifically, the bank is required to cooperate fully with ongoing investigations and affirmatively disclose any information it may later uncover regarding U.S. related accounts. So they have to turn over everything they have found, everything DOJ has found. And if they find anything else, they are required by this agreement to affirmatively, that means on their own, turn it over to DOJ immediately. If they don't, the deferred prosecution agreement can be thrown out and they can suffer greater penalties. The bank is also required to disclose information consistent with the Justice Department's Swiss bank program relating to accounts closed between January 1st 2008 and december 31st 2022 so 14 years worth of hidden bank accounts must be even if they're closed must be tur- the information on those must be turned over to the Justice Department and Maybe my favorite line in the whole thing. The agreements provide no protection from criminal or civil prosecution for any individuals. Boom. So any blackpilling you saw about this thing that said, bah, they're just going to pay $122 million, which is a drop in a bucket. They're a Swiss bank. They're so rich. They'll just pay that fee and then move on and they'll give lip service saying, we're going to change our ways. Nope. They have to turn everything over to the DOJ. They have to provide witnesses. They have to f- cooperate fully in the investigation of all of these hidden accounts. They have to turn over all the information on every hidden account between, that existed, even if it's closed, between January 1st, 2008 and December 31st, 2022. And the agreement provides no protection from criminal or civil prosecution for any individuals. So people at the bank can be found. Individuals at the bank can be found to have gauged in further malfeasance or criminal conduct, and they can be charged for it, either criminally or civilly or both. And I said it in my in my um my Telegram chat that just this is out of the SDNY. And just think about how many swamp creatures may have caused money to be moved around, and it's either from within, either either while they were in the Southern District of New York, or the money somebody in the chain was present in the Southern, like to just fall in the jurisdiction of the SDNY. There's so many swamp creatures that this can connect to. So, good news. I love some good swamp draining news, and there's more. There's more, there's more. Again, shout out to uh, Kim Sachs, who is very good at understanding and not reacting and uh, reading every word of documents and finding all the good stuff. She is an excellent follow on True Social. Highly recommend. There's more, there's more. Same day that that story broke. We got this story. Credit Suisse,
1: another swampy bank, Credit
0: Suisse has reinstated Neil Barofsky to review Nazi accounts. What? Credit Suisse reinstated Neil Barofsky as an independent ombudsman to oversee the Swiss Bank's review into its history of servicing Nazi-linked accounts. Yeah. Cinco 64. Good morning. And yeah, you're right. Kim Sachs is I of the storms, not so secret weapon. That is, that is very true. RL Skeeter. Thank you very much. It is a great way to start your day, huh? Yeah. All right. Um, the decision to bring Neil Borofsky back was announced Monday by the U S Senate budget committee, which has been probing credit Suisse's handling of the internal investigation quote, A clear-eyed and historically complete evaluation of Credit Suisse's servicing of Nazi-linked accounts demands painful facts to be met head-on, not swept aside, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa said in a statement. Barofsky was removed as ombudsman by Credit Suisse a year ago in November 2022, while he was initially tasked with producing a public report on his findings. The Budget Committee only obtained the document after issuing a subpoena In April, the Swiss bank said its probe didn't support key claims about Nazi-linked accounts made by the Simon Weisenthal Center in 2020 and that the reports prepared by Barofsky contained, quote, numerous factual errors and other flaws. Credit Credit Suisse was bought by rival UBS Group AG earlier this year. A spokesman for UBS didn't have a comment. So, perhaps, so this this, this guy, Neil Barofsky... He was written a book on, uh, I think he wrote a book on Nazi counts and them hiding wealth. Um, he was doing an investigation and I think I have another article on it where he says, yeah, it's this one right here. This one right here. Oops. He says, and let me see. Somebody posted the book. There he goes, Salty dog. Also a good follow over on X and he's on, uh, on a on, uh, true social, uh, bailout and inside account of counted how Washington abandoned main street while rescuing, rescuing wall street. He wrote this book about the bailout and government loan programs. Um, so this guy, this article is from April earlier this year when he was let go. And I just want to read just part of it. So you can get a little background on what's going on here. Credit group. Swiss or Credit Suisse Group AG failed to fully investigate recent allegations that it supplied bank accounts to Nazi party members before and after World War II and pushed aside an outside lawyer it had had charged with overseeing an internal probe into the matter, according to a Senate committee investigation. The Senate investigation was prompted by the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which in 2020 said it believed that there were accounts at Credit Suisse holding money looted from Jewish victims based on a list it had of 12,000 Nazi Party members and Nazi-affiliated labor union in Argentina. Credit Suisse is one of Switzerland's oldest banks found in 1856 and the second largest by assets. After a cascade of financial losses and scandals, it was forced to be rescued by UBS Group. Y'all remember that earlier this year. The Senate investigation reopens a painful chapter. Credit Suisse and other Swiss banks paid $1.25 decades ago to settle claims and return money to families of Holocaust victims as part of a period of soul searching in Switzerland that stirred up latent anti-Semitism and forced a reassessment around the country's wartime behavior. At the center of the Senate investigation are allegations by a lawyer the bank hired to oversee its probe of the Argentina list. He said Credit Suisse pulled back from fully exploring its Nazi links, including that it might have financial ratlines or systems of escape for Nazi elites following the war after having agreed to pursue leads. The lawyer, Neil Barofsky, a partner at Jenner & Block LLP, said he was sidelined partway through into the investigation, according to a report he provided to Credit Suisse after it ended his assignment last year. Credit Suisse said it continued the work without him. Mr. Borovsky said Credit Suisse's latest review unearthed details of relationships with some high-ranking Nazis that Credit Suisse hadn't disclosed before, including when it and other Swiss banks entered a 1998 settlement with Holocaust victims. Mr. Borovsky in- issued a report that said the bank found about 99 people of the thousands of names that were reviewed had accounts at some stage with most opened in the decades following the war. Mr. Barofsky didn't find any dormant or still open accounts. One such example was for an unidentified Nazi commander who had an account open until 2002. The amount of the account or reason for its closing wasn't provided to the investigator. So they let this guy go and said, we're going to keep probing this without you. And we think you found some errors, but now they're bringing him back. And I, I kind of imagine that maybe they're bringing him back because the Senate got um, the Senate subpoenaed the report, found out how bad it was, and then also Credit Suisse was purchased by the Swiss AG, AG Group, and it's forcing them to come to terms with this investigation and finish what that guy started, so they brought him back on. Now, how much swamp draining ends up coming from this, I don't know, but the first thing that comes to my mind is if this stuff becomes public and we start learning about... Like some people who had held power in the West in particular post-World War II who were beneficiaries of money the Nazis stole from the Jews, victims of the Holocaust. So just think about like the restitution to victim families is one thing. But imagine if we get some names of that are on these accounts and then we learn how many of those people have associations or are directly related to actual Nazis who fled Germany and went to Argentina or Brazil or wherever. (coughs) And then we find out that U S politics and the politics of other countries has been nefariously influenced or negatively influenced by people who were beneficiaries of Nazi money. Right? So, It could be some powerful people, or there's some familiar names who we find out oh, that person got their start not because they were a genius engineer or investor. They got their start because they benefited from a bunch of money stolen from Jews in World War II.
1: Okay. More,
0: more, more, more. My friend Dawson S. Field. Another swampy lawyer bites the dust. The corruption services industries are being exposed by the Russian sanctions. This one was for laundering money for one of Hillary's favorite Russian oligarchs. That's right. The lawyer for sanctioned and indicted Russian oligarch, Victor Vekselberg, has decided he's got to plead guilty. A New York lawyer who helped manage luxury properties in Manhattan and the Hamptons for sanctioned Russian billionaire Victor Vexelberg avoided jail for money laundering. Now, Victor Vexelberg, if you don't remember, I've covered him on this show several times. Victor Vexelberg is one of the Clinton Foundation's biggest donors. He is the man who paid $500,000 for Bill Clinton to go to Russia and give a speech Um, swampy as it gets swampy as it gets. And he was indicted and sanctioned. And so was his lawyer over this money laundering and real estate fraud type thing. And the lawyer has entered, has pled guilty and gotten a deal and there's something spicy in here. So I mean, as if that's not spicy enough, that's all good. And well, but there's something more in here. Robert Wise was sentenced on Monday to a year of home detention by U.S. District Judge Mary Kay Biscochill in Manhattan, followed by a year of probation. So it's like, oh man, this guy got one year detention home detention and a year of probation. That's so that's so lame. But understanding is greater than reacting, right? The government hadn't asked for jail time for Wise, noting that 83-year-old's several health problems. He appeared at the hearing in a wheelchair pushed by his son. Wise of Pelham, New York, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit international money laundering in April, admitting that he facilitated almost $4 million in payments for taxes and insurance on six homes in New York and Florida owned by Vexelberg worth a total of $75 million. The properties included a nine-bedroom, 11-bathroom spread on Duck Pond Lane in Southampton, New York, and a four-bedroom Park Avenue apartment. Vexelberg acquired them through a series of shell companies between 2008 and 2017, before he was sanctioned in 2018. Now, what you want to bet that DOJ's real interest here in giving this guy a sweetheart deal is getting access to all of the documents and records related to monies moved through those shell companies between 2008 and 2017. Between 2008 and 2017, don't you know a lot of money found its way to the Clinton Foundation and to the Clinton campaign? Vexelberg was part of a group of oligarchs including Oleg Deripaska sanctioned by the Treasury Department at the time over Russia's malign activities including its occupation of Crimea and its interference in the 2016 election. Wise was hired to manage the properties by Viktor Voronchenko a childhood friend of Vexelberg and also sanctioned swamp creature. Though he had suspicions, Why said he consciously avoided learning who the benefic- beneficial owner of the properties was. Quote, that was the worst mistake I ever made in my years of practice and was the worst decision of my life, Wise said to the judge. Voronchenko was charged in February with conspiring to make payments to maintain four of the oligarch's properties and trying to sell two of them. He is not in custody. The case is U.S. versus Voronchenko. Out of the SDNY, another great case out of the SDNY. <laughs> Pardon me.
1: So, some good swamp draining news. Right
0: there, did I grab anything else on this? I think I did. Yeah, I grabbed I grab that article. I will skip it. I already said what it is. So, all right. There's our swamp draining news segment. Let's go to the Hunter Biden uh, gun case. So as you recall, Hunter Biden got indicted uh, this summer and famously got a sweetheart plea deal, which... Republicans and MAGA media has done their best to make it seem like it would have exonerated him for absolutely everything, but it really wouldn't. It was always meant to blow up. And then they had that hearing and the judge started doing what a judge is supposed to do. Anytime there's a plea agreement, she has to ask the parties if they agree to what's actually in the agreement. She has to read it and make sure that they understand what the agreement says and that the defendant is actually agreeing to the what is in the agree, plea agreement. And that is his plea. And in doing so, they found out live in front of everybody that the plea agreement did not cover everything that the media said it covered and did not cover everything that the, the Biden's defense team, Hunter's team, thought it covered. Specifically, it did not bar him from FARA charges. And the DOJ admitted in that hearing that Hunter Biden was still under investigation for FARA violations, even though he was taking a plea agreement for the taxes owed and for this gun case. So the plea agreement famously blew up. And then a couple months later, special counsel wise hit Hunter Biden with, instead of one charge as a misdemeanor, hit Hunter Biden with three count felony case, three felonies. So Hunter went from one misdemeanor to three felonies real quick. <laughs> But shush, shush, you're supposed to forget that and ignore that. And you're supposed, to, you're supposed to believe that special counsel Weiss is handling Hunter with kid gloves and doing a cover-up op and whatever, whatever. Anyway, got a new filing in that case. On November 15th, Hunter Bind's counsel filed four subpoenas and a memorandum in support of those subpoenas. What they want is they want all documents and materials that mention Hunter Biden and any prosecution of him from Trump, former assistant or acting AG Rosen, former acting AG or assistant AG Donahue and former AG Bill Barr. His team, Hunter's team, is angling to argue that Hunter is being selectively or vindictively prosecuted and they want discovery on the former president and officials to that effect. They argue that the materials they seek, quote, goes to the heart of his pretrial and trial defense. That is possibly a vindictive or selective prosecution that arose out of an incessant pressure campaign that began in the last administration in violation of Mr. Hunter Biden's constitutional rights. So special counsel Weiss has responded to this, and I'm going to take you through the highlights of this filing. First special counsel Weiss. Oh, actually I'm going to show you this documents requested. This is what they're requesting from president Trump from, uh, is it Jeffrey Donahue or no Richard Donahue, Jeffrey Rosen and, uh, Bill Barr. They want one, all documents and records, personal or official reflecting communications the relevant time period, the relevant time period is like January 1st, 2017 until now the relevant, uh, to, from, or between or among the subpoena recipient. So either Hunter, I mean, either Trump Barr, Rosen or Donahue relating to, or discussing any formal or informal investigation or prosecution of Hunter Biden, including, but not limited to any decision referral or request to investigate or to not investigate or charge or not charge. Hunter Biden. Two, all documents, re- documents and records from that time period that have anything to do with the executive, any executive branch official, political appointee, DOJ official, government agency, government official, or staff person, cabinet member, or attorney for the president. So it's going to catch Rudy Giuliani too, discussing or concerning Hunter Biden. Three, all personal records, including diaries, journals, memoirs, memoranda, or notes. Since 2017, that discuss or concern Hunter Biden, including but not limited to any reference or formal or informal decision, discussion or request to investigate or prosecute Hunter Biden. And finally, any document or record produced by the subpoena recipient, so produced by either Trump, Rosen, Donahue, or Barr, to the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack that
1: reference Hunter Biden. That one I thought was really strange. I'm not sure how that comes in, but whatever.
0: Okay. Sorry, I'm sniffly. One day I'll be well. Completely, I swear. All right, so defendant asked the court, to enter an order directing subpoenas which broadly seek worded categories of documents across seven years to former President Donald Trump, former Attorney General William P. Barr, two other former officials in the U.S. Justice Department, that's Donahue and Rosen. The defendant, Hunter Biden, contends that the request of material, quote, goes to the heart of his pretrial and trial defense, that is, possibly a vindictive or selective prosecution that arose out of an incessant pressure campaign, that began in the last administration in violation of Mr. Biden's constitutional rights. It is worth noting, now remember, this is Special Counsel Weiss, it is worth noting from the outset that the defendant misunderstands the difference between pretrial arguments to dismiss an indictment and trial defenses. It is black-letter law that claims of vindictive and selective prosecution are not trial defenses it may only be brought and litigated pre-trial. They are not defenses, and therefore are never argued to trial juries. So you see that he's catching they. They say we need this judge. We need these subpoenas to go out because we need this for pre-trial and trial defense and. Special Counsel Weiss is like, look, you moron, you can't use selective and vindictive prosecution as a trial defense. You can only use it in pretrial. Oops. In any event, both vindictive and selective prosecution claims turn on the actual intent of the specific decision maker in a defendant's case. Here, the special counsel. But not only does defendant's motion fail to identify any actual evidence of bias, vindictiveness, or discriminatory intent on the special counsel's part, his arguments ignore an inconvenient truth. Again, this is special counsel Weiss. No charges were brought against defendant during the prior administration when the subpoena recipients actually held office in the executive branch. Instead, every charge in this matter was or will be brought during the current administration. One in which the defendant's father, Joseph R. Biden is the president of the United States and Merrick B. Garland is the attorney general that was appointed by president Biden and who personally appointed the special counsel. Boom. (laughs) Ha ha. Defendant has not shown, nor can he, how any external statements by political opponents of President Biden improperly pressured him, his attorney general, or the special counsel to pursue charges against the president's son. The government, as in all cases, and in this case as represented by the special counsel, is entitled to a presumption of regularity in discharging the duties of the executive branch, and defendant's claim provides nothing to rebut that presumption but conclusory assertions in pursuit of a narrative. In seeking discovery for a claim of selective prosecution, The defendant fails to identify any one similarly situated individual who was not prosecuted for similar conduct. This omission alone precludes his his request for discovery. He also identifies no constitutionally protected class to which he belongs and does not identify any evidence of discriminatory intent by the relevant decision makers, which is what the law requires in order to make out a claim of selective prosecution defendant's motion similarly fails to articulate any basis for a vindictive prosecution claim. Defendant fails to identify what protected constitutional or statutory right he is being punished for asserting. Under long of law, quote, a charging decision does not levy an improper penalty unless it results solely from the defendant's exercise of a protected legal right rather than the prosecutor's normal assessment of the societal interest in the prosecution. That is from United States v. Goodwin, 1982. Further, defendant does not claim that a presumption of vindictiveness applies and offers no evidence of actual vindictiveness. Because Armstrong's framework for obtaining discovery applies equally to a claim of vindictive prosecution, he again fails to satisfy the requisite heightened pleading standard. Lastly, while Armstrong makes clear that disclosure under Federal Criminal Rule Procedure 16 does not extend to selective prosecution theories, his claim fares no better under the limited mechanism of Rule 17C, which he seeks to employ here. Under the well-established standards of that rule applicable to both claims, defendant fails to make the necessary showing that his requests target only specific, admissible, and relevant evidence that is necessary for trial. Instead, He demands from third parties broadly framed categories of documents that bear no resemblance to the elements needed for his pretrial motion, even assuming rule 17 C subpoenas are available for such a purpose. All right. I would like to read the whole thing, but I want to also cover the other stuff. Let me see what his conclusion says. Um,
1: Just a moment.
0: This whole thing is worth reading. Uh, It's a lot of fun to read special counsel wise, argue against um, Hunter Biden on behalf of Trump. (laughs) It cracks me up. Let me see. Let me see what the conclusion says. I'll just read the conclusion real quick. Supreme court precedent both on selective and vindictive prosecution claims and on the scope of rule 17c compels denial of defendants motion for several reasons, even absent a heightened pleading standard defendant has not shown that the federal rules requirements of admissibility specificity or relevance can be much less are satisfied by the subpoenas. He propounds his allegations and subpoena requests focus on likely inadmissible, far reaching and non-specific categories of documents concerning the actions and motives of individuals who did not make the relevant prosecutorial decisions in this case on allegations about disparate treatment or discriminatory intent regarding the special counsel. The defendant's motion is notably deficient. Moreover, the Supreme court's and third court's unequivocal enforcement of Armstrong means that to get even theoretical discovery, a defendant must make a credible showing of selective or vindictive prosecution, including Identifying similarly situated but disparately treated individuals. Viewed under that lens, the defendant's requests become even more untenable. This court should decline to allow its compulsory process to be invoked for defendant's unsupported, improper attempt to circumvent the rules applicable to criminal subpoenas, particularly with respect to the claims at issue. David C. Wise But you know, David C. Weiss is uh, another swamp creature, handpicked by Joe Biden's corrupt DOJ to protect Hunter Biden, which is why he indicted him on three felony counts and isn't letting him get discovery on President Trump, Bill Barr, Richard Donahue, or Jeffrey Rosen. Makes sense, right? I mean, that's of course what's going on, right? Of course, of course, of course. But like I said, it is kind of wild to read a document that positions special counsel wise arguing against Hunter Biden in order to stop him from obtaining documents in the possession of Trump, Barr, Rosen and Richard Donahue. Quite funny. I do think the simulation has a sense of humor. I really do. Okay. Okay. And that leads us to bind impeachment inquiry, which uh, the current Speaker of the House, who knows how long he'll be Speaker of the House, <laughs> maybe we'll get another Speaker of the House sometime next year. I don't know. Uh, Mike Johnson says that he's going to vote on impeachment, inc- official impeachment inquiry being launched next next week. We'll see if that happens. But he says he has the votes. Even after kicking Santos out, which we won't get into the Santos thing right now. Done that. We done did that. But in regards to the impeachment, there is some news on it. I think I got these mixed up right here. So, one, there's a report out right here, and I, it's way too big to go through on the show. It's 78 pages. Um, I might go through it this afternoon and then present what I find in it on Devilish and Power Hour tonight. I'm going to talk with John and BB and see what we want to focus on for tonight. Um, might be some good stuff in here, but I will say that I've been kind of underwhelmed uh, by the recent announcements from the investigation into Hunter Biden and the Biden crime family lately because we got this from, where'd it go? That's not what I want. I wanted this, there's this. They, all right, I didn't grab the, so there's a post with, uh, I guess I grabbed the wrong one or I meant to include another There's one where they, they posted, Racomer posted um, a video and a claim about money being transferred from Hunter's Owaska to Joe Biden. Where is it at? My bad. Um, they're going after Fannie Willis. By the way, uh, which remember that's another separate thing they announced the judiciary did is they're they're launching an inquiry into Willis colluding with the January sixth committee. Do you remember there were there was allegations about that? there was um like a year ago or almost a year ago, there was talk about how Fannie Willis and the January sixth committee were communicating with each other. um Well, now the House is going after that and seeing what, if there's any there, there, but there's this other thing from, of course we had, we had FBI director Ray in front of the house, uh, yesterday. I didn't get to watch all of it. I only got to watch a small part of director Ray testifying. Honestly, I don't expect much from it because anytime Ray goes in front of the, the judiciary or oversight panel, all they do I mean let's be honest all they do is try and get clicks and views. They just try and get good sound bites of them bashing Ray and they ask him questions which they know he can't answer and then they monologue um over the top of him and don't let him say what he actually is allowed to say. And then he tries to get permission from the chair to actually answer the question. And then the chair only gives him half time or does denies him time. Or if he does get an opportunity to fully respond, the person who asked him questions whose time is up then interrupts him and in monologues some more. So it's like there's just like it would be really interesting if they had a good question-answer session and everybody was being forthright and I'm asking questions in good faith, but they're not, they're not asking questions in good faith. They're asking questions for the express purpose of creating a 30 second, 60 second soundbite. That'll make it on its way onto the news later that night and go viral on the internet. That's their whole goal. So here it is. Here it is. So this is the claim from Comer. Let me, uh, let me get this. I'm gonna have to unmute it. Y'all probably saw, already saw this, but it's really short. So I'm going to go ahead and play it.
2: Joe Biden claimed there was an absolute wall between his official government duties and his family's influence peddling schemes. This was a lie. President Joe Biden claimed his family didn't receive money from China. This was a lie. President Joe Biden claimed he never spoke to his son, Hunter Biden, about the Biden's family's shady business dealings. This was a lie. Now Hunter Biden's legal team and the White House's media allies claim Hunter's corporate entities never made payments directly to Joe Biden. We can officially add this latest talking point to the list of lies. Today the House Oversight Committee is releasing subpoenaed bank records that show Hunter Biden's business entity, Owasco PC, made direct monthly payments to Joe Biden. This wasn't a payment from Hunter Biden's personal account, but an account for his corporation that received payments from China and other shady corners of the world. At this moment, Hunter Biden is under an investigation by the Department of Justice for using Owasco PC for tax evasion and other serious crimes. And based on whistleblower testimony, We know the Justice Department made a concerted effort to prevent investigators from asking questions about Joe Biden. I wonder why. The more we learn, it appears the Justice Department was trying to cover up for the Bidens until brave IRS whistleblowers came forward and a federal judge rejected the sweetheart plea deal. Payments from Hunter's business entity to Joe Biden are now part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden, knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's influence-peddling schemes. When Joe Biden was vice president, he spoke by phone, attended dinners, and had coffee with his son's foreign business associates. He allowed his son to catch a ride on Air Force Two at least a dozen times to sell the Biden brand around the world. Hunter Biden requested office keys to be made for his office mate, Joe Biden, in space he planned to share with a Chinese energy company. We've revealed how Joe Biden received checks from his family that were funded by the Biden's influence-peddling schemes with China, no less. The House Oversight Committee continues to investigate Joe Biden's involvement in his family's domestic and international business schemes at a rapid pace. We will continue to uncover the facts and provide transparency about the findings of our investigation. President Biden and his family must be held accountable for this blatant corruption the American people expect no less.
0: All right. So I'm not going to say that anything Comer said there is specifically wrong. I mean, I think, I think it's largely right. There's some narrative in, but it's all right. But what they put out is kind of, I haven't, I haven't gone through this report by the way. So I may be very whelmed by this report, (laughs) but this claim that was going around as, as part of a release with that video that Hunter Sent money from Owasco to Joe Biden. I am underwhelmed by. And the reason is Oversight Chairman James Comer released bank records showing that Hunter Biden's company, Owasco PC, transferred $1,380 to Joe Biden in 2018. So that would be after Joe Biden was out of the White House. It's coming from Owasco to Joe Biden. Now, I don't think there's anything legal, illegal about that. However, Hunter Biden's email shows this could have been a payment for a truck. And the reason they say that is if you go to Marco Polo and you search this out, you can find this right here. Ford Raptor reimbursement to Joe Robinette Biden, $1,380. And this time right here, look at this. this is This is uh, January. The date on this email is January 1st, 24 or January 14th. 2019 and it says Hunter's bills 2018 to 2019 attaches a PDF of what I know about for bills I hope this helps if you prefer a different format please let me know also highlighted below is a list of current bills due not including tax obligations George's payment or Bill Morgan's payment which you have asked me to hold off on hope all is well thanks Katie Dodge so I get that people are saying look We've got a payment from a Wasco PC, which is Hunter's entity, which he received income into from foreign business deals into a Wasco. And then we've got 1,800 of that or 1,380 of it going to his father as a reimbursement for a Ford Raptor truck oversight committee said the committee is aware of at least three monthly payments in the same amount made to Joe Biden, one in on September 17th, another October 15th of 2018 and another on November 15th, 2018. So I suppose the allegation here is that Owasco uh, received money from foreign entities and then Hunter transferred three truck payments in the amount of $1,300 to Joe Biden. As reimbursement. And I'm not saying it's legal. I'm not even saying it's ethical. But I do think it's kind of underwhelming. Like, I don't know. I I think it's it's just not that exciting to me. So I want more than that. That's all. That's all. And maybe there's more than that in this report. But that one right there, it's like, uh, guys, I wouldn't have led with that. I definitely wouldn't have led with that bank record. I would have, I would have included it maybe in a bundle of other bank records that are notable, but that one, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have separated it out from the other ones. (laughs) I would have made it one of many. Okay. All right. I got that. That was the Biden impeachment stuff. So, All right, let's get to Trump cases. I have about an hour left of this show. So first in Trump cases, actually, I can get rid of this. Again, I'm not knocking Comer or the oversight they're doing. I mean, no insult to them. I just just think that was underwhelming. Oh, and I just see breaking on a telegram that Hunter Biden is refusing to comply with the closed door session. This is from my friend, Doc Connecting Anons over on Telegram who has an excellent channel is a post a lot. They post a lot of stuff. Melissa does. She is on it all day long. If you're not following Dot Connecting Anons on Telegram, you are missing out. So, Hunter Biden refuses closed door deposition. You may remember that Hunter Biden's attorneys, like two weeks ago, time runs together. They messaged, they sent a letter to the oversight committee um, who had subpoenaed Hunter Biden to appear for a closed door transcribed interview and said, no, we're not going to, we won't, we don't want to sit for a closed door interview. We want to do a public hearing. We want it to be public. And the uh, oversight committee wrote back and said, we're open to doing a public hearing with you, but first we want you to sit for a closed door deposition. And I think the reason they want that, they want to do it closed door so they can do a transcribed interview. And then when they have a public hearing, they can use the transcribed interview that was happened closed door to ask questions of Hunter based off of and try and hold him to what he said in the closed door meeting. But it looks like Hunter Biden has refused that. He says attorney for Hunter Biden reiterates to the house oversight committee chairman Comer that the president's son would be sitting, would not be sitting for a closed door deposition and re upped his offer to testify in a public hearing. The new letter to Congress follows as a subpoena by Comer. Like I said, quote, he is making this choice Because the committee has demonstrated time and again it uses closed-door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts, and misinform the American public, a hearing would ensure transparency and truth in these proceedings, Lowell wrote. In a public hearing, members from both parties of the committee each have five minutes to question a witness in in an open setting. In a deposition, each party has representatives take alternating hours to question a witness behind closed doors. The media and public cannot watch depositions, but they are transcribed and sometimes their transcripts are later made public. In the letter, Lowell used Comer's past public statements as a reason for why they came to this decision. Lowell cites statements he made on a conservative podcast on October 31st. Quote, we're in the downhill phase of this investigation now because we have so many documents and we can bring these people in for depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose. Oh, Comer had said, whichever they choose. He also cited a statement from Comer um, that he made on Newsmax on September 13th. Quote, Hunter Biden is more than welcome to come in front of the committee. He's invited today. We will drop everything. Comer sent Lowell a letter on November 8th. Quote, given your client's willingness to address this investigation publicly at this point, we would expect him to be willing to testify to before Congress. After Lowell's first letter stating that Hunter Biden wouldn't sit for a closed door deposition, Comer in another letter welcomed a public hearing, but said he would only allow it after Hunter Biden set for a deposition. Okay. So the the Hunter Biden oversight committee sitcom thing, the episodes continue. Fun. It's fun. whichever Whatever happens, it's fun. All right. Mark Meadows, we're going to Trump's cases now. So in the Georgia case, I mentioned a while ago that the House is looking into coordination between Fannie Willis and the J6 committee. Um, Mark Meadows still has his appeal um, going on. And three-judge panel has been chosen for it. So White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, his case is going before a panel in the 11th Circuit consisting of judges that are appointed by Biden, Obama, and George Bush. A three-judge panel has been selected that will decide whether former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is to face criminal charges in federal rather than Georgia State Court. The clerk's office for the 11th Circuit of Court of Appeals said Monday, first reported by Lawfare and confirmed by The Messenger, the names of the three federal judges that will hear the oral arguments on December 15th, so that's the date, are Chief Judge William H. Pryor, Judge Robin Rosenbaum, and Judge Nancy Abudu. Pryor, an appointee of Bush, is the only judge on the panel nominated by a Republican president. The others were nominated by Obama and Biden, respectively. Meadows has been trying since August to move his portion of the Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's election racketeering prosecution case into U.S. District Court. We'll see if he succeeds. The oral arguments will be live streamed from the court's website. Which could be fun. Okay. Okay. Uh, So we got two updates in, well, actually, let me do this first. So, oh, I kind of messed up. I kind of messed up the other day. Let me see. Is it this one from December 1st? These should have been available on Pacer, I mean, on Court Listener by now.
1: Why are they not available yet? is directed to unseal. Notice of compliance response. I thought we already had this. I
0: thought we already had that. Hold up, hold up. I'm pretty sure those were available on Court Listener the other day, and now they're not.
1: Is it this one? Let me see. Consent motion. Sorry, I want to make sure I have this right. Okay, I'm in DC on that, cast. Okay, that's not the right one. So,
0: over in um, Judge Cannon's case, there were a number of documents that had been sealed. And I had pointed out, I think last week, that, hey, over there, there's a bunch of uh, sealed documents being filed in this case. Don't know what they are, but they're, um, there's a bunch of sealed stuff. And it's been unsealed earlier this week. Judge Cannon ordered them all unsealed. And if I can get to what I wanted to talk about, I can show you this was sealed. The problem is I deleted something I made and now I can't
1: see is it is it number two thirty one? Maybe it is two thirty one. Is that what I have here? What's two hundred twenty seven? That's not what I want. Going super pro. That's the government's response. That's not what I want. Hold up, hold up. Maybe I can't present this to you because I'm a goober and I didn't save it. No, nope, that's from last month. That's from this day. Where did it go? All right, just a moment, just a moment. It's worth it to me to take the time to do this because I want to correct something I did. Now I'm looking a bit silly because I can't find the order that i want that's not the one that's not the one that's the response to the order this clerk's note, paperless order
0: this is it this is it but it says it's just see it wasn't it came available earlier and now it's not available 228 228 is the docket number Sometimes that happens with Court Listener. At least it looks like it's still not available. It's not available over here on Pacer either.
1: Hmm. Let's see two
0: twenty four. that's all the way back on November 27th.
1: Okay, it is this? It's
0: back from November
1: 27th, 28th. Okay.
0: Okay, so okay, I see what's I see what's going on. I see what's throwing me off. The date that this order right here became available from November 27th was it didn't become available until over here on November Fourth, So on November 4th, in this case, this is the Trump DC docket case. We had all these sealed filings in it. There were like five
1: sealed filings in a row.
0: And, um, the judge ordered them unsealed this week. And when she did that, it, that order came out on December 4th. And so it unsealed all this stuff over here. And one of these things that made some news was this one right here from November 27th, which is the sealed ex parte order denying. Uh, no, no, it's not that one. Sorry, I'm still messing up. It's this one right here, number document entry 226 from November 29th, which unsealed um, some of this order, and what this says. Is this is the right one. This is the right one. Ex parte means that it's between the party and the judge. So. This cause comes before the court upon following two procedural motions filed by the special counsel on November 22nd. One, an ex parte motion to exceed the page limit. So there's a limit on how many pages can be in a filing over here in this court. And um, they file a motion to exceed the the page limit on their motion. Two, an ex parte motion to exceed page limits for a SIPA section four motion that has to do with classified stuff. Docket Entry 222 requests permission to file Docket Entry 223 ex parte. So after doing that, they then requested, hey, can we file this ex parte and under seal? The judge says, Judge Cannon says, neither motion contains or reveals classified information. The court has reviewed the motions and is otherwise fully advised on the premises. For the reasons provided below, the ex parte motions are denied as to the ex parte nature of the request, but otherwise denied without prejudice. So ex parte communications generally disfavor because they conflict with fundamental precept of our system of justice or if a hearing requires a reasonable opportunity. So if you go through this, I wish I would not well, I kind of wish I would have deleted what I did. But what's going on over here is that they filed Jack Smith. Jack Smith made these filings under seal and what he was asking for was for permission from the court to exceed the page limit, li- the page limit because he wanted to file one big filing that covered all the things he wanted to address instead of three or four individual filings that base that largely can- would have contained the same arguments and the same language, and it has to do with Sipa Section Four, and in these things I want to say. I'm trying to remember which one it was? Yeah, this one right here. So, Jackson reporting went out, the rage bait reporting on this. I think it's rage bait reporting the rage bait reporting on this development that Jack Smith wanted to do the stuff under seal was that Jack Smith was trying to hide things from the public and was playing some sort of trickster game to try and prevent the public from seeing what he was attempting to do in this case, because he's an underhanded crook. He's a monster, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not what the filing says. And I addressed this online to a particular person. And I did so in a rude way. And I ended up about 24 hours later, deleting what I posted because I just don't want to be that guy. I just don't want to, I don't, that's not the way I want to handle it. But I get really frustrated, as I've said before, with folks, with media on the right and with influencers on the right who take something that on its face is not this black pill, negative, whatever, and then they twist it into being that. I really hate the rage baiting and the outrage porn and just, just all of the stuff that I see that happens in news media that is on the same side as I am, so to speak. It drives me nuts because it's just needless. And it's also, we get upset with the left when they do it, right? Maybe upset isn't the right word, but we call out the left and their media when they take things out of context or they misrepresent something and we call them fake news for it sometimes, but then when people on the right do it, we excuse it and we just accept it. Or we just like, we're not even, we don't have any circumspection because, Oh, well it's there's somebody on the right and they agree with me on a lot of things. So therefore I won't criticize them. And I don't like that, but the way I criticized this thing in particular was unusually rude as far as how I handle things. So I ended up deleting what I did, which is rare. I rarely delete anything um, that I post. Even if I find myself disagreeing with myself shortly after or weeks after, I'll just leave it up because it's like, you know, I'm not afraid to change my mind as I get new information. But on this, I, feel, I felt uncomfortable. It bothered me, so I deleted it. But what I wanted to point out here about this is that if you take the time to read the documents instead of just going by the clickbait that goes viral, you find out that there wasn't some trickster thing going on here and that the government, meaning Jack Smith, consented to all of this stuff being unsealed. The clickbait media on the right were trying to say that Jack Smith didn't want it unsealed. He was trying to hide this from the public so you'd never find out. But it says right in here: the court has under this under this ordered this unsealed. The court entered a sealed ex parte order denying the the government's motion on this and that. Otherwise, denying the motion on this, blah, blah blah. The government refiled under seal, and the court ordered them to file under seal the following on november 29th the following confer- the following the government and the defendants conferred with one another and the government filed a sealed com- consent motion and then requested permission to file a single page motion or single motion of up to 85 pages under sipa section 4 rather than multiple motions of shorter length the court has since ordered that motion unsealed as well on November 29th, the court issued a sealed order permitting the government to exceed the page length imposed. So, th- so Judge Cannon granted Jack Smith um permission to file this 85-page length motion, and they directed him um and the court ordered that unsealed too. Then on November 30th, following conferral with the government. The three defendants filed a joint motion to unseal these things. So the defendants and the government agreed, hey, let's file a motion. We are in agreement. Let's unseal all this stuff. And then in conference with defense counsel, the government did not oppose unsealing the the documents. Boom. So this, this clickbait that went viral over these motions and what Jack Smith is arguing here, this doesn't get to the merit of what he's arguing, okay? Like just set aside what he's actually what is inside the motions. Let's set that aside. There wasn't this effort by the special counsel to keep these things sealed because some secret nefarious activity is happening. No. The defendants, Trump, Walty Nada, Oliveira, the court, and the government agreed to unseal the documents. The only thing they wanted to keep sealed were portions of two of the filings Because they wanted to do some limited redactions in those, okay? After all, we're dealing with classified information or motions that concern classified information, okay? The defendants, meaning Trump, did not oppose that request. So they all agreed, everybody in this case agreed, let's unseal all of these previously sealed motions. By the way, they were only sealed for like two weeks max. Some of them only for a week. They all agreed to unseal them, but the government said, "I want to keep some portions of it sealed uh, be- because there's some re- I need to put in some redactions." And Trump didn't oppose that. But they did reserve the right to challenge the redactions themselves later, but they did not oppose. Today, the court issued an order directing those filings to be unsealed and directing the government to, quote, transmit unredacted copies to the defendants. So another of the clickbait allegations going around was that Jack Smith was trying to keep this stuff from Trump's team. But Jack Smith's team was conferring with Trump's counsel the entire time. And they were agreeing on how they would handle this. They were in agreement on it. The government was ordered to transmit unredacted copies to the defendants anyway. So there was nothing being hidden from Trump. The court also ordered the government to file under seal. So here, again, the court ordered Jack Smith's team to file some of these motions under seal. This one in particular had to do with those redactions. She ordered them to file under seal their motion to justify the redactions and kept in mind that, yes, the defendants do have a right to challenge those redactions. Then Judge Cannon says, however, in light of the court's order directing the government to provide unredacted copies to the defense, there is no longer any need for the requested relief. The government sought to file its motion ex parte because it was ancillary to an ex parte proceeding and it would have revealed defense counsel information or to reveal to defense counsel information, albeit unclassified, about the contours of the government's planned SIPA section four motion. So the government is planning to file this 85 page motion. They've asked permission for it to be 85 pages. They filed it ex parte, meaning between them and the judge under seal because they wanted to hide They didn't want to hide this part. They wanted to hide what they planned to put into that filing, which the defense is going to get. So they didn't want to preview to the defense what was in their 85-page filing. Not just yet. They didn't want to give them a preview of it. They wanted to put it all together and then file it, which at that point, the defense would get it. So if you want to say they were trying to hide something, They were literally just trying to hide the ball while they put their hand on it to put it into the pitch. Like, like they just wanted to hide the ball in the glove so that they could put their fastball grip onto it. Like that's like, that's it. That's it. At least that's my understanding anyway, because the court rejected that position and ordered the government to provide unredacted versions to the defense counsel. There is no justification for them for keeping them from the public. The government does not object to them being unsealed. So anyway, anyway. As you can tell I get annoyed by this stuff.
1: Because there are plenty of legitimate things to be outraged about.
0: Why why work to create clickbait and contort information into outrage? rage bait, whatever, to get people worked up and mad when it's not real. There's nothing to be mad about. I mean, look, it's right here in black and white. The government has no objection to its unsealing. The government does not object to it being unsealed. And I think part of what really annoys me about it and the reason I lost my cool little bit and made a rude post is because I feel like it's disrespectful to the audience. I feel like it's disrespectful when people on our side, so to speak, create rage bait, clickbait, whatever, and manipulate you emotionally with misinformation or just hyperbolic narrative to try and get, I mean, it's manipulation. They're emotionally manipulating you to make you upset when they could just report what's in the paperwork and give you the raw information. And then you can decide if you want to be upset about it. But I just, it's like offensive to me. Like, I think it's, it's disrespectful because it necessarily assumes that you won't do the extra work to read the documents yourself. And because they know you won't do that, it's easier for them to emotionally manipulate you. Maybe that's not in their mind and it's not their intention, but to me it's disrespectful. Okay, I'll get off of that. I'll get off of that. That's just that's just where I'm at on it. Okay, over in the DC case, and this will be the last thing we cover today, I believe. I do not have time to read this entire thing. Do I have both of these pulled up at the same? Okay, so one, there's two updates from the DC case. Hold up, let me reorder these things. I think I have this open twice, don't I? Yeah, I do. Okay, so... First, Judge Chukin, um, over in the uh, D.C. case, which is the J6 case, denied Trump's motion to dismiss based on presidential immunity, which we read on this show, and denied Trump's motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds, which we also read on this show. Rose Thistle Art, you're absolutely right. No one can make you upset without your permission. That's totally true. It's totally true. I and I alone am responsible for everything I think and feel. It is true. Okay, so she denied these motions. I'm not going to read her full 48-page opinion on this. We read those motions on this show. They were really good, really enjoyed them. And what this means is that Trump is going to have to go to trial and submit all his evidence as to why he believed the election was rigged and why he made the decisions that he did. Darn it. Daggum Isn't that terrible? Isn't it terrible that Trump is going to have to go to trial and tell people all the reasons why he thought the election was fraud affected? Shame, shame. Next, and this is the big no, not. Oh, did I delete the wrong one? I'm such a bozo sometimes. Here we go. Now we're going to go through my thread. This will be the last thing we do. Also, in United States v. Trump, special counsel Smith has filed a notice pursuant to federal rule of evidence 404b. You guys that were with me during Durham may remember federal rule of evidence 404 B it concerns other crimes, wrongs or acts. So it's the prosecution comes in and they say, we're going to bring at trial or we want to introduce at trial other crimes, wrongs or acts that the defendant has engaged in in, in order to inform the jury of the state of mind and like things like that. So it's a, uh, I will read it specifically. Actually, it's worth it. It's worth it in okay, case so you guys don't remember. Rule of Evidence 404b. It says other crimes, wrongs, or acts. Prohibited uses. Evidence of any other crime, wrong, or act is not admissible to prove a person's character in order to show that a particular occasion the person acted in accordance with that character. That's what's prohibited. But what is permitted is evidence may be admissible for another purpose, such as proving motive. Opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake, or lack of accident. That is why Jack Smith wants to bring in this other stuff. So that's what makes these filings uh, typically really spicy because it provides information as to what other evidence they want to bring in. And in the Durham cases, this was spicy. Those were some of my favorite filings, like when we learned more and more about Jaffe and um, other things he had engaged in. That was during the Danchenko trial. Okay. First, government's notice pursuant to federal rule 40B. The government will provide the defendant and the court extensive advance notice of the intrinsic evidence it plans to introduce at trial, including through its exhibit and witness list. Motions in limine, those are limiting motions. That's where the, that side tries to tell the other side what they can't bring up at trial, which also can be spicy filings. And a detailed trial briefing setting forth the government's planned trial presentation. And in an abundance of caution, the government below notices evidence that although intrinsic to the charged crimes, pre and post dates, the charged criminal conspiracies. If the court were to find that any part of the noticed evidence below is an extrinsic, the evidence is also admissible under Federal Rule of Evidence 404B, because the government will offer it not to show the defendant's criminal propensity, but to establish his motive, intent, preparation, knowledge, absence of mistake, and common plan. Historical evidence of Trump's consistent plan of baselessly claiming election fraud. As set forth in the indictment, the defendant's criminal conspiracies relied on his knowingly false claims of election fraud. At trial, the government will introduce a number of public statements by the defendant in advance of the charged conspiracies, claiming that there would be fraud in the 2020 presidential election. These statements sowed mistrust in the results of the presidential election and laid the foundation for the defendant's criminal efforts. So, reminder, this case falls apart if and when Trump provides evidence as to why he had reasons to believe that there was significant fraud in the 2020 election. That is his disclosure defense. If Trump is able to demonstrate he had good reason to believe that there was fraud, then the case falls apart. The government, actually, in in addition to this intrinsic evidence of false statements about the 2020 election, the government will offer evidence reflecting the defendant's historical record of making such claims. For example, as early as November 2012, the defendant issued a public tweet making baseless claims that voting machines had switched votes from then-candidate Romney to then-candidate Obama. During the 2016 presidential election or campaign, the defendant claimed repeatedly with no basis that there was widespread voter fraud, including through public statements and tweets. For instance, on October 17th, 2016, he tweeted, quote, of course there is large scale fraud happening on and before election day. Why do Republican leaders deny what is going on? So naive. The defendant's false claims about the 2012 and 2016 elections ...are admissible because they demonstrate the defendant's common plan of falsely blaming fraud for election results he does not like, as well as his motive, intent, and plan to obstruct the certification of the 2020 election results and illegitimately retain power, which he didn't. But, okay. So, Special Counsel Smith plans to recount all the times Trump said elections were affected by fraud. In other words, he's going to recount all the times Trump was right about election fraud. <laughs> Good morning, bootleg salsa. <coughs> like, seriously, guys, Jack Smith is planning to talk about all the times since 2012 that Trump was right about election fraud and attempt to argue that it shows some common plan of his to claim the election was stolen in 2020. It'll be fun to watch Trump's team bring up all the times Democrats said the same thing as Trump. Next, historical evidence of the defendant's common plan to refuse to commit to a peaceful transition of power. To ensure the destabilizing impact of his widespread election fraud claims in the run-up to the 2020 election, the defendant, President Trump, repeatedly refused to commit to a peaceful transition of presidential power if he lost the election. The government will offer proof of his refusal as intrinsic evidence of the defendant's criminal conspiracies because it shows this is his plan to remain in power at any cost, even in the face of potential violence. For instance... At a September 23rd, 2020 news conference, a defendant was asked whether, quote, win, lose or draw in this election in light of rioting in many cities across the country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Would you commit to making sure there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? President Trump responded, well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots and the ballots are a disaster. And a reporter interrupted the defendant and repeated, quote, I understand that, but people are writing. Do you commit to making sure there is a peaceful transfer of power? President Trump responded, I know, I know. We want to have to get rid. We want to get rid of the ballots. You'll have to, you'll have a very, uh, we'll have a very peaceful, but there won't be a transfer. Frankly, there will be a continuation. The ballots are out of control. You know it. So, and we're going to dig in. We're going to definitely highlight the uh, continuation remark tonight on Devolution Power Hour. But Jack Smith's claim right here that I highlighted, the defendant repeatedly refused to commit to a peaceful transition of power if he lost the election. The government will offer proof of this refusal as intrinsic evidence of the defendant's criminal conspiracies because it shows his plan to remain at power at any cost even in the face of potential violence. And yet Trump did leave office peacefully. And there was a peaceful transition to the Biden presidency. And I made sure to include an asterisk there. So Jack Smith's argument here is undercut by the reality of what really, what happened. The fact that there is a Biden presidency, And that Trump did leave office on January 20th and that Trump didn't remain in power at any cost. Another excerpt. Similarly, the government will offer evidence that the defendant pursued the same strategy four years earlier in 2016. In the presidential debate on October 19th, 2016, the defendant was asked whether he would accept the results of that election To which he responded that he would, quote, look at it at the time. The debate moderator followed up, quote, there is a tradition in this country. In fact, one of the prides of this country is the peaceful transition of power and that no matter how hard fought a campaign, that at the end of the campaign, the loser concedes to the winner and that the country comes together in part for the good of the country. Are you saying you're not prepared now to commit to that principle? Trump responded, what I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. Okay. Now I think Gene Wilder would have appreciated that line, but Smith does not. Special counsel Smith writes, Trump's consistent refusal to commit to a peaceful transition of power, even though there was one, Dating back to the 2016 presidential campaign, campaign, <laughs> campaign is admissible evidence of his plan to undermine the integrity of the presidential transition process. When faced with the possibility of an election result that he would not like, as well as his motive, motive intent, and plan to interfere with the implementation of an election result with which he was not satisfied. Next, evidence of the defendant and co-conspirator's knowledge of the unfavorable election results and motive and intent to subvert them. The indictment lists multiple examples of the defendant's efforts during the charged conspiracies to pressure state officials to change election results or appoint invalid electors in spite of the election results. The government also plans to introduce evidence of an effort undertaken by an agent who is an unindicted co-conspirator of Trump who worked for his campaign to immediately following the election obstruct the vote count. On November 4th, 2020, the campaign employee exchanged a series of text messages with an attorney supporting the campaign's election day operations at the TCF Center in Detroit. Where votes were being counted. In the messages, the campaign employee encouraged rioting and other methods of destruction when he learned that the vote count was trending in the favor of the defendant. Or of the defendant's opponent, excuse me. Then we got some redactions here. The government will also show that around the time of these messages, An election official at the TCF center observed that as Biden began to take the lead, a large number of untrained individuals flooded the TCF center and began making illegitimate and aggressive challenges to the vote count. Thereafter, Trump made repeated false claims regarding election activities at the TCF center when in truth, his agent was seeking to cause a riot to disrupt the count. This evidence is admissible to demonstrate that the defendant, his co conspirators, and agents had knowledge that the defendant had lost the election, as well as their intent and motive to obstruct and overturn the legitimate illeg- results. So he's trying to blame Trump for what some campaign person said and may have attempted. I think this person may be Tim Griffin. And I think that because. <coughs> We have this story here back from November 6, 2020, and it mentions Republican attorney Tim Griffin found himself pacing in the wee hours of the night, frantically calling for volunteers to head to Detroit to challenge the ballots, suspicious that something nefarious was happening. Among the wild claims on social media, you guys are all familiar with those. As expected in a city known for grit, resilience, and strife and persistence, the vote count at Detroit's TCF Center was a roller coaster ride. Blah, blah, blah. Resulting in a record 167,000 absentee ballots counted by Wednesday evening to the soundtrack of crowds shouting, Stop the Count. This was no ordinary election, but an extraordinary Democratic process that planted bullseyes on Detroit's election played out, exactly how Republicans feared. Blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let me see. The drama at TCF center started election day before voters even went to the polls. The absentee ballot processing began at 10 a.m. Monday in Detroit with poll workers seated at their tables inside the center, removing outer envelopes as they prepared for the daunting task because of changes to Michigan state law clerks of cities and townships with more than 25,000 residents can now start processing ballots, but not open them the day, not opening them the day before election day on Monday. Republican challengers were standing by, so were police with whom fifteen and within fifteen minutes a process started removing a man wearing a white horror movie mask. Police sent a clear message early that they would act swiftly to eject disruptors. The man in the horror mask made had credentials to be a poll challenger. But he started a commotion, shouting that the process was crooked. One hour later, another Republican challenger was removed. This one for causing a commotion at a ballot processing table and refusing to pull her face mask over her nose. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said the police acted appropriately and issued a warning to future rabble rousers. By 11 p.m. Tuesday, Jeffrey Knowledge was settling down at a friend's house to make dinner. Blah, blah, blah. His phone rang. He, the absentee ballot counting process inside the TCF center was being disrupted. And the ACLU needed people to monitor what was happening. Around the same time, Republicans also sounded alarms. Uh, Let's see. Republican challengers were disrupting Detroit workers as they counted the city absentee ballots. Republican election monitors and challengers had maintained a steady presence inside the TCF Center throughout Tuesday evening and into the night. According to Knowledge, those who turned out to help protect Detroiters' votes came from several groups, including the ACLU, NAACP, Detroit Will Breathe and Detroit Action, Michigan Liberation, 482 Forward, and 313 Care Collective, all leftist groups. Let me see if it has more about Republicans. Tensions inside the TCF Center grew as Republican challengers sounded multiple alarms. Hours later, a similar request was made to Twitter uh, saying they needed help Republicans, uh, they were trying to get more Republicans to show up and help. Uh, Republicans showed up in droves. By 1 p.m., there were 227 Republican challengers freely roaming the floor where the ballots were being counted, almost double the 134 they were permitted to have. So because they called for more people to help monitor the vote counting, they ended up with way more than they were supposed to have. And guess what? It wasn't just Republicans. Another 268 Democratic challengers were there too, which was also the double double the amount permitted. And there were only 75 nonpartisan challengers. As the crowd of challengers swelled, so did so did COVID 19 fears and security concerns, blah, blah, blah. So I think it's that guy. Another reason I think it's him is because um This article from Politico from last October, a Republican elections attorney who played a key role in trying to overturn the vote in multiple swing states in 2020 election is coasting to election next month for the Virginia State House. A handful of party insiders have tried for months to stop the candidate, Tim Griffin, from winning election. But despite raising concerns with at least a dozen GOP leaders, including Glenn Youngkin, their effort has fallen. Griffin worked alongside former President Donald Trump's campaign for months to fan false claims of election fraud around 2020 and played a key role in in trying to overturn the vote in Michigan. So I think it's this Griffin guy, and I think what Jack Smith is trying to say is that chaos at the TCF, TCF Center in Detroit is Trump's fault because someone affiliated with his campaign asked too many people to show up to be observers or something like that. Sorry to rabbit trail on that, but that's, it's kind of weak. Okay. Pre and post conspiracy evidence that the defendant and co-conspirators suppressed proof their fraud claims were false. The indictment provides evidence that the defendant repeatedly sign-lined advisors and officials who told him or the public the truth about election results and who pushed back on his false claims. The government will introduce additional evidence that this was the plan of the defendant and his co conspirators, and that even after the charged conspiracies, they continued their efforts to stifle any dissent to their false claims of election fraud. So, Trump elevating people who gave a damn about election fraud and ridiculing those who did not is somehow retaliation for the latter not supporting his criminal plans that's that's what jack smith is tr- going to try to say next The government will also introduce post-conspiracy evidence of continued retaliation against the chief counsel of the RNC for speaking publicly the truth about the falsity of the defendant's claims, including the defendant. In the summer of 2021, co-conspirator one, that would be Rudy Giuliani, took to Twitter to publicly attack the chief counsel over this issue. Trump and Rudy and co-conspirators and agents' aggression and stifling dissent Against election fraud claims before, during, and after the charged conspiracies, is admissible to demonstrate to the defendant and his co-conspirators' knowledge that their fraud claims were false, to establish their plan for depicting their election lies as true, and to show their intent to silence anyone who refuted their false claims. So, Rudy Giuliani was mean to RNC chief counsel Justin Reamer, and now that's 404B evidence. Okay. Jack Smith. Okay. Next pre and post conspiracy evidence of the defendant's public attacks on individuals, encouragement of violence and knowledge of the foreseeable consequences at trial. The government will introduce evidence of this conduct, including the defendant's public endorsement and encouragement of violence. And further will elicit testimony from witnesses about the threats and harassment they received after the defendant targeted them in retaliation in relation to the 2020 election. I have never seen Trump encourage violence. Maybe against maybe against ISIS, but I've never had seen him encourage violence inside the United States. Mean tweets, I think is what he's getting at. Jack Smith is going to try and use some of Trump's greatest mean tweets. That concern the 2020 election against him. Now I think that ought to be fun. Next, the government plans to introduce evidence from the period in advance of the charged conspiracies that demonstrates the defendant's encouragement of violence. For instance, in response to a question during the September 29, 2020 presidential debate, asking him to denounce the extremist group the Proud Boys. The defendant instead spoke publicly to them and told them to, quote, stand back and stand by. Members of the group embraced the defendant's words as an endorsement and printed merchandise with them as a rallying cry. As discussed below, after the Proud Boys and other extremist groups participated in obstructing the congressional certification on January 6th, the defendant made clear that they were acting consistent with his intent and direction in doing so. So Jack Smith will attempt to argue that Trump saying stand back and stand by somehow translates to storm the winter palace, which is what Enrique Tarrio told the Proud Boys to do. It was an internal phrase they used that meant break into the Capitol and obstruct the vote count and take members hostages if possible. I'm not making that up. That's what's in their own documents and communications. They would call it storm the winter palace. So stand back and stand by somehow means storm the Capitol. Good luck making that argument, Jack Smith. Then I got to say, it's a good thing the proud boys are already tried and convicted. And the evidence and statements from those trials can be used to help Trump not hurt him. If you paid attention to those trials, you know this. That's right. Storm shelter. Uh, the Proud Boys trial drove a wedge between Trump, between them and Trump, and the Oath Keepers trial as well. That's right. I mean, they already had a wedge between them. They turned on Trump much earlier, and I'll get to that in a moment. But at their trial, they tried to they they created distance between them, and they also tried to blame Trump uh, for some things. So, like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys trials did nothing to help associate them with Trump. It it put distance between them. Then, long after charged conduct, the defendant continued to falsely attack two Georgia election workers despite being on notice that his claims about them in 2020 were false and had subjected them to vile, racist, and violent threats and harassment. So, Jack Smith is planning on bringing up Rudy Freeman and Shea Moss. We'll see how that works out for them. Uh, I'm not sure that's... I get the angle he's going with there. He's being mean to these these two ladies but I'm not sure they're the best witnesses for him to bring forth if he does decide to put them on the witness stand. The government will also introduce such introduce evidence to further establish the defendant and his co-conspirator's plan of silencing and intent to silence those who spoke out against the defendant's false election fraud claims. The defendant's knowledge that his public attacks on officials like those on vice president on his vice president as described in the indictment could foreseeably lead to threats, harassment, and violence. So because Trump disagreed publicly with Mike Pence that's somehow a call for violence, and I just feel like pointing out that Lynn Wood did 10 times more to stoke the irrational hatred of Pence than Trump did. Trump even said, has said this year that Mike Pence is a good man who never did anything knowingly wrong in his life. Does that sound like a call for violence? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, whatever. Next, finally, evidence of the defendant's encouragement of violence will be presented. And again, I have never seen Trump encourage violence. I've seen him do quite the opposite, but I've never seen him encourage violence. Next, and this is possibly the most offensive part, not sure yet. The government plans to introduce evidence at trial showing that in the years since the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the defendant has openly and proudly supported individuals who criminally participated in obstructing the congressional certification that day, including by suggesting that he will pardon them if reelected, even as he conceded that he had the ability to influence their actions during the attack. Perhaps most importantly, the defendant's embrace of January 6th rioters as evidence of his intent during the charge conspiracies because it shows that these individuals acted as he directed them to act. Indeed, this evidence shows that the writer's disruption of the certification proceeding is exactly what the defendant intended on January 6th, and finally, evidence of the defendant's statements regarding possible pardons for January 6th offenders is admissible to help the jury assess the credibility and motives of trial witnesses, because through such comments, the defendant is publicly signaling that the law does not apply to those who act at his urging, regardless of their legality, the legality of their actions. So, Trump's sympathy for January 6th defendants is quote, admissible to establish the defendant's motive and intent on January sixth. I find that reprehensible that Trump's sympathy for Jan Six defendants is somehow speaks to his criminality. Um And I also find it absolutely false on its face, because Jack Smith is trying to say because Trump has sympathy for January 6 defendants, it indicates that they engaged in their act, their actions at his direction. But the actions that they took were directly opposed to what Trump wanted to happen. Trump wanted the objections to be heard, so if trump wanted the objections to be heard which is what he publicly said and he asked people to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard to encourage specifically to encourage specifically to encourage maga or to encourage the house the republicans in the house and the senate to object right like trump's expressed directions to the crowd were to peacefully and patriotically make our voices heard. Why? Because he wanted the Republicans in the House and the Senate to object to the slates of electors from the swing states to buy more time for there to be investigations in those states into serious allegations that fraud may have affected the results in those states. And the people who, in, who went on the Capitol grounds and disrupted the joint session went directly against what Trump asked them to do and directly against what Trump wanted. The dissonance is so strong. It's so deafening. And I, I ended this with a comment that has caused much arguing. Well, not that much, but some arguing. In the comments, Uh, my last comment is the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers turned on Trump. And that's not according to me. That's according to their own documents, their own testimony. They went against what he wanted and are the groups primarily responsible for the violence on that day. If not for them, there would not be any January 6th defendants. I don't think so anyway. Maybe there would be a very small handful, but there would not have been the disruption that we saw. They were most certainly not acting as agents of Trump. They did the opposite of what he asked the crowd to do. They obstructed the joint session where he wanted objections to swing states to play out and got some of his most loyal and well-meaning supporters to trespass and obstruct the joint session as part of their plan to spark a civil war. Now, I put civil war, which maybe it's fair to call it that, but they also called it a civil war. I mean, a revolutionary war. So, like, it's kind of debatable whether they wanted a civil war or a revolutionary war. Proud Boys were calling it. I mean, they, in some of their texts, they called it a uh, a revolutionary war. We need a second revolution. But it also, in some of their text messages to each other, they said we're not getting. Like Oathkeeper said, we're not getting through this without a bloody civil war. So, whichever. Now, I personally look forward to Trump's team expertly dismantling all that's in these 404B filings. Particularly this last part, because I'm really hoping that finally people will start to understand that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers are not our allies. And when I say this, I'm talking about the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers that were at January 6th. Like, for some reason, people keep on extrapolating that to, me- to think I'm meaning every single Proud Boy and Oath Keeper that ever existed or exists anywhere on the planet Earth. We're talking about January 6th, though, so therefore, I'm specifically talking about the PBs and OKs that were at January 6th. So there were some uh, discussions that broke out down here, and I'm not going to get into all of them. Some of the discussions kind of glowed. You know, surprise, surprise, the person just asking questions ended up glowing by the end of the series of questions, right? But people have asked me before, what's your evidence against their Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys? Why do you say the things you do about them? Well, it's because I go after I go off of what they themselves said. So, if you, I included right here uh, from the Oath Keepers indictment, which contains their own text messages and internal messaging, and they didn't dispute that these messages were accurate. On November 5th, two days after the 2020 election, Oathkeeper leaders Rhodes decided Civil War was the route to take and began taking steps to start one. He turned, this is two days after the election, Rhodes sent a message to an invitation only to an end-to-end encrypted group chat on the application signal. It was titled Leadership Intel Sharing or Leadership Intel Chat, okay? This is where the top Oath Keepers people, the, the, the leader, the top guy, Rhodes, and then all of his closest people were all in this chat group. His quote from two days after the election, he wrote, quote, we aren't getting through this without a civil war. Too late for that. Prepare your body and mod, your mind, body, spirit. On November 7th, 2020, so four days after the election, uh, which was the date that President Trump was projected to have a, to lost the election, Rhodes wrote to the leadership intel chat, quote, we must now do what the people of Serbia did with Milosevic. We have to refuse to accept the election and march en masse on the nation's capital. So this wasn't Trump's plan to march on the capital. Rhodes and the Oath Keepers began planning this, planning J6 back on November 7th. Rhodes then sent a link to a bit shoot video titled, quote, step-by-step procedure, how we won when Milosevic stole our elections. Rhodes continued, quote, I am in direct contact with, or he wrote context, but I think he meant contact, with the Serbian author of that video. His videos are excellent. Here is a written advice to us. Peaceful protests are good, well played for round one. A complete civil disobedience. They are not... Your representatives, they are foreign puppet government, connect with the local police and start organizing by neighborhoods to stay safe, et cetera. Then December 22nd, 2020, in an interview with a regional Oath Keepers leader, Rhodes stated that if President-elect Biden were to able to assume the presidency, quote, we will have to do a bloody, massively bloody revolution against them. That's what's going to have to happen. He urged President Trump to use military force to stop the lawful transfer of presidential power, describing January 6, 2021 as a, quote, hard constitutional deadline to do so. So Oath Keepers, December 22nd, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, was saying that if President Trump doesn't call in the military by January 6th, then we're going to have to take actions into our own ha- hands and we will have to do we will have to do a bloody, massively bloody revolution against them. On November 23rd, 2020, Rhodes published another open letter on the Oath Keeper's website. Rhodes explained, quote, tens of thousands of patriot Americans, both veterans and non-veterans, will already be in Washington, D.C., and many of us will have our mission-critical gear stowed nearby just outside D.C. By the way, their, quote, mission-critical gear included Firearms. They already had a plan to start a revolution. They staged weapons just outside D.C. for their mission, which was to start a revolution. Then Rhodes stated in the open letter that he and others may have to, quote, take to arms in defense of our God-given liberty. On December 23rd, James N. sent Rhodes a letter to co-conspirator and told him the letter was required reading. Rhodes continued advocating for the use of force to stop the lawful transfer of power. On January 6th, just before 1.30 p.m., in the leadership intel chat on Signal, in response to a claim by an Oathkeeper affiliate that Antifa had breached the Capitol, Rhodes replied, nope, I'm right here. These are patriots. So a lot of people try and tell me, Kyle, you're wrong about Oathkeepers and Proud Boys. They didn't breach the Capitol. It was Antifa. Antifa broke into the Capitol. They were dressed as MAGA. And you're just blaming the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys because you don't like them. As I've been saying, my assessment, my estimation of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers is based on their own words. And what Stuart Rhodes said on January 6th in response to someone claiming that Antifa was responsible for breaking into the Capitol was, nope, I'm right here. These are patriots. Rhodes then messaged the leadership signal chat, quote, Pence is doing nothing as I predicted. All I see Trump doing is complaining. I see no intent by him to do anything. So the patriots are taking it into their own hands. They've had enough. At approximately 1.30 p.m., Oath Keeper's affiliates on the Leadership Intel chat posted messages about police officers deploying pepper spray at the Capitol and questioned what the rioters hoped would happen if they got inside the Capitol. A person with Rhodes at the time responded, quote, we are acting like the founding fathers. We can't stand down. Per Stewart and I c- concur. Rhodes then said, hey, the founding generation stormed the governor's mansion in Massachusetts and tarred and feathered tax collectors, and they seized and dumped water and tea. Don't they dumped tea in the water. They didn't fire on them, but they street fought. That's where we are now. Next comes our Lexington. It's coming. What they mean is that they are starting a revolution. And in order to get a revolution started, they are going to get MAGA patriots killed in the process. So that's from Oath Keepers. You can look at their own words, guys. You can look at their own trial. You can look at the evidence at trial. You can look at their own statements at trial, the witness testimony, etc. From Proud Boys. Proud Boys had a document called 1776 Returns. Some people have wrongly claimed that this is an FBI document that was given to Proud Boys and planted on them as some kind of frame-up job. It's not. A meathead within the Proud Boys who made a claim that he was being groomed for the FBI, but he was never in the FBI, came up with this document, gave it to Enrique Tarrio. The leadership of Proud Boys altered it and expanded it. It's called 1776 Returns, and from this, you get the phrase, Storm the Winter Palace. In this, they detail how they want to take over federal buildings in D.C. on January 6th, including the Russell Senate Building, Durkin Senate Building, Supreme Court, Hart Senate Office, Cannon House Office Building, Longworth House, Rayburn House, and maybe CNN. They talk about how they want to get as many as at least 50 MAGA people inside each one of these federal buildings and hold them hostage there, hold the building hostage, and then issue a list of demands, kind of like terrorists do. And their whole goal is what? 1776 returns, as in Second American Revolution. And now, even if you think, no, okay, Kyle, but that sounds bad and all, but it was planted on them. This is some evidence that was put on them. It's a frame-up job. It's a smear job. Well, not according to Enrique Tarrio. Enrique Tarrio, at his sentencing, said, I will have to live with the shame and disappointment for the rest of my life. We invoked 1776, meaning that document. And the Constitution of the United States, and that was wrong to do, it was a perversion. He admitted to all of it. And so did others. So anyway, people have asked me to make the case on this, but then people get upset with me when I do. But I'm just going by the actual documents and messages and witnesses and the evidence at trial from the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and when you look at the videos from that day, you see Proud Boys and Oath Keepers being the first on scene and setting the trap for the MAGA folks who were actually at the speech and who came later. So, I don't know. It's kind of weird how people fight me on this, but I think the programming in MAGA is just way too strong. (coughs) I guess. I don't know. All right, thanks, folks. I really have to run, so that I can go get my toddler. Yeah, Cinco, how dare I rely on facts and evidence? <laughs> how dare? I? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. People have people have their narratives, and they want to stick with their narratives because they prefer them to the facts and evidence. This is that's just, this is what they want. I can't do anything about it. Oh, well. All right. Thanks, everyone. If you enjoyed it, hit the thumbs up. Share it. Leave a comment. What have you. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, Rise attire. Tire. Well, I think you're minimizing some stuff. So, I guess we're even on that. All right. Y'all have a great day. Stay blessed. Remember, we're not going to win every battle. But we are going to win this war. We are having two great weeks in a row. Enjoy it. Have a great day. I'll see you tonight.